It's Thursday, June 1st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. War. What is it good for? Well, according to the chorus of that song, absolutely nothing. But if I took my advice from the chorus of pop songs, I would never have chased that waterfall, which was quite satisfying to acquire and look at. War is good for winners, usually. Well, almost always better than for the losers. But there's a more specific question brought up by the city and battle of Bakhmut. What was that particular part of the Ukraine war good for? We were told when the battle raged, not much. Russia will have at most a Pyrrhic victory, having expended a great deal of resources and manpower on a city that is not really strategically important in the Ukraine war. It's a town many Western allies say is strategically unimportant, and yet it's become the sole focus of Putin's military efforts since October. Politically, if they lose it, Kiev has really got to manage the loss of this place. Militarily, they shouldn't worry too much. Sky TV, French 24 TV, and task and purpose with those assessments, and they were right, except they weren't. We now know what it was good for. Bakhmut was good for killing Russians. An estimated 30,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded here. For a city, military analysts agree, has little strategic value. Now, as a few days ago, we now have more reliable figures, and there that 20,000 Russians were killed. The wounded amounted to 40,000. So that CBS Australia clip you heard underestimated by half. Now, casualties. Let's talk about casualties. People use it, I think, as a synonym for the dead. It's not. Casualties means dead and wounded. So why would this be a useful way to think of people hurt or killed on the battlefield? Well, the answer is... In a war, in an actual battle, the battlefield assessment, a casualty takes the combatant off the field. So they are, in a way, according to military thinking, useful to conflate. But when assessing costs to a country or to a people in retrospect, we do focus on the dead, and that is proper. 7,000 Americans died fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. That is an enormous cost for those families of the 7,000 back home. Also, an enormous cost for the wounded, because wounds can last a lifetime, physically and psychologically, but they are properly seen as two different things. But here in Bakhmut, we have 20,000 dead Russians, plus another 40,000. It was quite a cost, a big blow to this supposedly victorious fighting force. In military parlance, it was known that Ukraine couldn't trade with the Russians. So the question is, what ratio? How many Ukrainians were killed and wounded? Preliminary estimates put it at perhaps 10,000 killed, but certainly not tens of thousands killed, which would be, and sorry, cruel war logic here, which would be, according to the military experts that I've been paying attention to, would be an acceptable ratio strategically for the Ukrainians. Of course, we will never know what the true count was. We'll only know how it affects the war going forward. And this is because the Wagner Group Leader Evgeny Prigozhin himself more or less confirmed the 20,000 figure, and Ukraine doesn't have a renegade commander picking fights with other commanders, shaming the military, boasting of tens of thousands of prisoners he purposefully sent to slaughter, which is good in terms of decency, but bad in terms of acquiring good stats. We won't know how worth it any of this was until we see what happens next. The Russians are pausing. They had to. It came at an enormous cost, did the victory. And the next steps are not made any easier by the last. As Bakhmut goes, so goes Bakhmut. 
and the lives of tens of thousands of belligerents. On the show today, how to handle a public utterance of religious ignorance. Sacramento offers lessons, maybe not the best kind, but first, Michael Isakoff is author of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. Here's the Conspiracy Land podcast. He's been an investigative correspondent for decades. Yesterday, he was on the show to talk about his preliminary impressions of the Durham report. We will get into that again. We will talk about the Steele dossier. I will play him some clips of my conversation with James Comey. And truth will be decided upon. Michael Isakoff up next. Mike Isakoff has, over the years, been an investigative reporter at the Washington Post, NBC News, and Yahoo News. He is the author of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war in America and the election of Donald Trump. In part one of this interview, we talked about Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI's investigation into Donald Trump, and the Durham report, which critiqued parts of that investigation. So I asked Isakoff about James Comey, and how James Comey has always said that he was agnostic on the truth of the Steele dossier. I pressed James Comey on this point on Tuesday's interview, and upon hearing that, Isakoff's ears perked up. When I told Isakoff that in our interview, Comey came closer, inched closer, to acknowledging the Steele dossier was mostly bunk, Isakoff said this. How, how, how much did he inch? What did he say? <laughs> okay, so here's what I asked Comey. Here's how he answered. Let us use the miracle of editing to play that for you now. Can we now say that on a factual basis, the Steele dossier should be at least considered very, very skeptically? I Well, I think it was treated very skeptically all along. So I'm just not... I'm not fencing with you. I, I can accept the judgment that all of it is not, it doesn't check out or some of it checks out. I just don't know the answer to that. It wasn't that important to my life as FBI director. And when I encountered it, my view was, I don't know. We should check this out and try and replicate it for ourselves. So back with Isakoff, the question is, if Comey was just following the facts where they led him, would we have seen a different investigation than we actually saw? Um, you know, it's hard to say because there were a lot of judgment calls along the way. Um, how to handle the Flynn matter, right? Remember, like the Crossfire Hurricane team wanted to drop the case against Flynn at the end of, towards the end of 2016. Yeah, it's their recommendation. Yeah. Right. And then they get this information. He's talked to the Russian ambassador, right? And then there's a question, well, what do we do? Do we, um, uh, you know, do we go interview him? Do we tell him this is part of a, you know, investigation? Um, should we give him a chance to co correct himself if he misstates things? Um, Comey was, you know, pushing it. Go for it. Go, Comey and McCabe. I, I'm, I'm a little uh, uh, foggy on exactly who did what in that, but it was clear from the seventh floor that they wanted the aggressive approach and that led to um, Flynn's um, lying to them about the conversation he had. Now, if you look at the conversation he had, it really wasn't all that 
um, nefarious. He was suggesting, look, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be in uh, charge. We're taking over. And he's essentially saying we're going to come up with our own new policy on Russia. In and of itself, that's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, my God, when Obama came in, he had the whole Russia reset. He reset you know, U.S. policy towards Russia as well. Um, every new administration gets the chance to do that. Um, it was not particularly smart or wise or helpful for um, uh, Flynn to be telling that to the Russian ambassador a couple weeks before they took office. But, you know, was it a shocking breach of national security? I, I, you know, I think it was kind of obvious that Trump was going to have a different approach on all sorts of foreign policy issues. He'd been outspoken about NATO and putting more pressure on European allies to pay more for NATO. So, you know, um, it was... um, it was a case for which different people could have reached different conclusions uh, mm-hmm. about what steps to take. There were judgment calls. You know, I don't want to condemn every or criticize every judgment call because each one, you know, is in its own context. But yeah. I think clearly the fact that Comey and McCabe were believers in the gist of the steel dossier has to influence how they approached these questions. Did the Durham report fill you in, do anything to advance your knowledge of if Charles Dolan, the uh, big Democratic donor and PR executive, planted the seeds or in fact sourced all the information that was behind the P-tape portions of the of the steel dossier? I, I think the uh, the 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 circumstantial evidence on that is fairly suggestive yeah. that it did come from Charles Dolan. He's the guy who goes to the um, uh, to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel where all this takes place. He's the guy who talks to the manager there, right? He's the guy. And then he's with Danchenko, and then it shows up in the Steele dossier. I mean, and you know, so now... Durham ultimately was not able to prove that. Uh, Dolan didn't cooperate. um, So we don't know for sure. But I think a fair reading of the circumstantial evidence would suggest that Charles Dolan, who was a Clinton guy, a Democrat, um, was um, uh, likely the source. Uh, Now, whether, you know, maybe... From Dolan's perspective, he was just passing along a rumor and labeled it as rumor. And then Danchenko is the one who gave it to Steele and somehow it then it got, you know, transmuted into real fact. Um, But um, uh, we don't know for sure. But, um, you know, I would think. And and by the way, the other part of the Steele dossier that's worth mentioning Remember when I was talking about Manafort a minute ago and yeah. the fact that he was in hock to Deripaska? Who else was Christopher Steele working for? Deripaska. He was, on, you know, he's working for the lawyers for Deripaska. So all that does raise questions as to whether some of that dossier was Russian disinformation or misinformation. I don't know that we'll ever know. Christopher Steele is still in La La Land insisting it's all true. He's probably the only person left who's doing that. Um, but um, uh, it's certainly, you know, when I 
I, I always had suspicions that Steele had connections with Deripaska. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, there was a time in a different media world that would have been front page stories, you know, yeah. in major media. Um, but, um, you know, it's almost well, like you met Steele. You met Steele because your friend and colleague, Glenn Simpson, who ran Fusion GPS, set the meeting up. So Simpson was someone you trusted. Could you flat out ask him and get a straight answer? Um, yes, uh, I could ask him. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> it, it's, uh, that's a somewhat complicated relationship. But yes, Glenn Simpson was a great reporter for the Wall Street Journal, a longtime friend of mine. He went into a different business than journalism. Uh, and um, yes, he did set that meeting up. Uh, and, um, um, you know, in retrospect, should I have asked some more questions. I I wasn't getting answers uh, to some of them. That's true. He wasn't forthcoming about who his client was. I did not know. It was the Clinton campaign through um, uh, through their lawyer. But you knew it broadly uh, to be Democrats. I knew it was likely, you know, Democrats who had an interest in um, finding research on Donald Trump. That much I right. knew. But, you know, it, it, but it's a little, I thought it was probably some, if not a super PAC, some one of these uh, 501c4 kind of operations. It was a, I was a little taken aback when I learned it was the Clinton campaign and the DNC itself that paid for for all of this. Well, um, did you ask about Deripaska? At, the, at that time, I did not know about the relationship with Deripaska. Have you it, since my, asked my suspicions about came later. Yeah. Have my, you since asked him about that? Um, I, I don't want to go into my conversations with Glenn. Uh, okay. But 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 um, um, you would. It was a natural question um, yeah. to ask, and um, if I had gotten a clear answer, I would have reported it. The importance of, was it Charles Dolan who seeded all this information about the P-tapes is that if it was, think about what that means. This was an extremely successful intelligence operation whereby a giant Hillary Clinton donor and backer put out information that was seen as credible by almost all of the media and many Democrats that even if that part of the Steele dossier wasn't true, it is what got people interested in the Steele dossier. Plus a lot of people thought it was true. So if it was Charles Dolan, it would seem to be, we put, let's put this in the Hall of Fame of successful intelligence (laughs) operations. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's one uh, uh, part of the the Durham report that I thought was uh, overdone. Yes. um, Oh, I know what you're going to say. The the defensive briefing part? Well, actually, that's a part of it, but that's not what I was... Okay. Durham was making a big point about the FBI's failure to follow up on the intelligence that John Brennan had brought to the White House that um, the Clinton campaign had uh, a, a secret plan to play up the Russia connection of Trump in order to distract from uh, uh, her email problems, right? I mean, that's what it was. And then Durham 
takes them to task for not following up. Look, I don't know. We don't know what the nature of that intelligence was. It was supposed to be Russian intelligence, right? I mean, I mean, a lot of this is very murky. And as you know, somebody who's covered Intel matters for a long time, you know, sometimes a lot of this stuff is pretty sketchy and not something you or I would, you know, want to go report on because it's it is so sketchy. But the fact that the Clinton campaign wanted to play up Trump's Russia connections was hardly a secret. I mean, they were doing that publicly, right? Yeah. From the, the the day of the Democratic convention, you know, Robbie Mook was talking about we need to look at Trump's connections to Russia. He, he was, you know, they, they he the said Russians it in a debate. He said, "No, you're the puppet." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. So I, I don't know. That one, you know, didn't uh, yeah. strike me as uh, uh, as all that significant. I'd like to know what the nature of the intelligence was and where they got it, but. Um, You've been doing this a long time and things have changed, but what's your analysis of why there's been no, if not deep reckoning, at least even broad acknowledgement of mistakes that were made, especially not just out of some sort of uh, sense of journalistic hygiene, but just to try to getting the good graces of viewers and listeners. Why doesn't the media acknowledge that there were major mistakes made in the characterization of the Steele dossier? Why does the media, is it almost uh, compelled to treat the Durham report as something that needs to be dismissed because Donald Trump overpromised what it would deliver? Um, well, uh, I mean, number one, none of us like to admit we're wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's always, uh, you know, pulling teeth. None of us like to, you know, fess up when, you know, corrections are needed. But, you know, that's what editors are for. That's what, you know, supervisors are for uh, to ensure those sorts of things happen. But, you know, more broadly, I mean, I mean, you know, it's a reflection of our tribalized, you know, uh, um, political environment today. Yeah. You're either one camp or the other. And, um, you know, the, it's all about, you know, hurling spitballs at each other on Twitter and on cable TV. And, you know, that is not an environment or culture that allows for nuance and reflection and for, um, you know, sober looking back. And um, we are captive of our narratives um, far too much. And um, look, I mean, you know, I've been a reporter for a long time, as you point out. And, you know, I, the, you know, the surest way uh, to the front page of the Washington Post when I worked there or the cover of Newsweek when I worked there or NBC Nightly News when I worked there was I, I, I come up with a story that fits a preconceived narrative. That's what people already believe, except you've got new evidence that show what people believe is true is even more true, right? So that's yes. that's the easiest way to get on the front page and get, you know, running stories that are counter to the narrative in the culture uh, um, have a lot uh, a bigger lift and yeah. a lot tougher. Although they're, they're, they are ones that I aspire to. Um, I think that, I think you're right. I think there's an economic imperative uh, to be partisan if you're in the media. I do think that the people who run many of these uh, media outlets at least like to see themselves, uh, and it's an honestly held belief that they wouldn't do that and they're fair brokers. Maybe I'm being a little too 
ethereal about this, but I think we've, to some extent, and you've been at this longer than I have, gone from being driven by facts to being driven by truth. And so we think the truth or the media thinks the truth is that Donald Trump is a threat and Donald Trump is a liar. And he actually lied about even things that he was innocent about. And so therefore, if you're serving the truth, um, that's one thing. If there are facts that maybe contradict the truth, well, default to what you think the truth is, which is something like, as I said, Donald Trump Trump can't be trusted in any of this. Right, right, right. Well, look, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump does have a long track record of um, saying a lot of things that are not true. <laughs> but right? that, that's I mean, another yeah. point that even yeah. on this, or if you look at the Nunes memo, which I analyzed and I felt bad about because I mocked it because what I did was I took the, you know, over the top blustery claims of how this proves greatest hoax ever, blah, blah, blah. And I pretty much stopped there. And I said, you can't take this guy seriously. There's something about uh, Trump, those in his orbit, the people who respond to that, that love the bluster. It leads them to bluster in dishonest ways. And then I do think that the media often says, therefore, there can be nothing of substance that is attendant to this bluster. But that's not true. That's not the case. I don't even know if... Well, you tell me, do you think Trump is doing himself a disservice? Would they, if he sent emissaries out to plainly make the case that there was no hope, there was no collusion, would he have gotten a fairer hearing in the media? I'm not I, sure. I think, I think if he wasn't Donald Trump mm-hmm. and, and, and yes, uh, you know, tried to um, uh, do what Democrats do all the time, you know, um, you know, work the media, work the media with people who, you know, presumably have relationships with people in the media who have, you know, uh, who can talk and are willing to sort of engage in a not, you know, food fight way. Um, Yeah. If instead of, you know, Cash Patel and, you know, and, 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 you know, Sean Hannity, um, he had others who were you know, persuade, you know, pointing to the facts, pointing to the missteps of the FBI, pointing to the obvious holes in the Steele dossier, pointing to some of the, you know, over coverage that never held up in all major media, um, uh, that they would have, there would have been um, more reporting on that, more willingness to engage. But it was Trump, it was Trump world. And, you know, it's, they weren't, you know, they view the media as the enemy of the people. So why even bother to work the media? Why even bother to try to persuade people that, you know, some of what you were reporting is not really holding up? So the last thing I want to ask you is in the beginning of our conversation, you talked about the two views of uh, Crossfire Hurricane, Russiagate. One right. is that there was, uh, the, the Russians were working with members of the Trump campaign team, certainly to distort democracy. And on the other hand, that this was the greatest greatest hoax ever perpetrated. And then you said something like both can be true. Actually, they can't. It can't both be the greatest hoax ever <laughs> and that there was uh, collusion and collaboration. And this, I think, gets to what I was talking about before, which is the nature of truth. You have to pick your truth. So would you rather live in the truth that this, there's no option, here's my point, there's no option for 
it wasn't a collaboration. And yet at the same time, it was far from the greatest hoax. And there's many things, even as regards Russia, that Donald Trump and his campaign has to answer for. That's what I think. That's, I mean, that's at least where I'm Yeah. I mean, I, that, yes, uh, in short, I mean, has to answer for, you know, they don't have to answer for anything yeah. because <laughs> they should answer yeah. for it. Um, yeah. I mean, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you find the emails. Um, uh, you know, the whole meeting at Trump Tower with, you know, if it's what you say, I love it. I mean, there was plenty of stuff there. Uh, and, and the mere fact that Manafort, even though I think he was mainly doing it to suck up to oligarchs, was sharing internal polling data. I mean, yeah. Um, that was a legitimate um, counterintelligence concerns. All these things were. Um, what when I said both things can be true, the Russia hoax part of it is the you know the Steele dossier, the the active collusion, the criminal, the well developed c- criminal conspiracy that turned out to be you know not true. Whether you want to call it a hoax or not is. One can decide, but but certainly uh, there were overstatements and inflation of this, and this did you know become it, it it set a cultural narrative that really had an impact, and I think an unfortunate one. But at the same time, the Russians were doing some really nasty stuff, and um, and and Trump was oblivious to the ways in which the Russian government was trying to help him get elected president of the United States. Michael Isakoff is chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News, co-author of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. And I did plug a podcast he no longer does called Skullduggery, but a podcast he does is called Conspiracy Land. Check that out, too. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. And now the spiel. It all started two weeks ago when the Sacramento City Council heard from Ryan Massano. The 43-year-old local man is a far-right, he claims not Nazi, his views suggest Nazi sympathies, and he had some things to say during the open comment period at the City Council meeting. Winding through a litany of complaints from unions to the direct election of senators, Massano landed on this point. Until union control of police and all other professions is ended, they will not be truly accountable to the people they serve. Unions profess to give fair wages and benefits, but in reality it is about absolute control from the top of the unions. If white supremacists hate bigotry, bigotry, sexism, and racism from whites was a problem in Sacramento, then why isn't the entire Sacramento City Council made up of straight whites? So we see you are deceiving when you speak about the problems of racism, white supremacy, Nazis, and hate. Just because you hate the truth does not make a white person who tells it hateful. Anti-Semitism used to mean someone who hates all Jews. Now it means someone who is hated by Jew bankers. 90 percent. Hey, see you later, pal. We don't want to hear any more from you. Okay, I have have the First Amendment. I have the First Amendment. This is a violation of my First Amendment rights. The voice shutting him down there was Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, 
who had to concede, yes, the First Amendment and rules of decorum allowed Masano to finish, but the tumult had just started. The next week, Masano returned. With him, Jeffrey Perrine, a proud boy who has lately been an unsuccessful candidate for local office in Sacramento in the area. When Masano's name was announced as a speaker, but before he began to speak, a half dozen protesters surrounded the lectern, unfurled banners, and chanted their displeasure. Madam Clerk, we're going to recess for five minutes. We're going to recess for five minutes. We're going to recess for ten minutes at 2.640. In your chamber, they're doing a Nazi salute. Engaging conduct that disturbs the orderly conduct of the meeting. The meeting was recessed, some order was restored, and then as Masano and his proud boy pal were seated in the back of the chamber, they were once again confronted by protesters who screamed and at one point sprayed the contents of a water bottle at them. The meeting was adjourned for the night. But remember how I started with the words, it all started? That's never quite true. Histories and contexts are brought to bear. And in the case of Sacramento politics, the meetings had become steadily disrupted by protesters, angry at police brutality, angry at plans to clear homeless encampments. Hours before Masano first spoke, the open comments period prompted such expressions as outrage as this one directed at Mayor Steinberg. Did you fix everything? Is it all done? Is every problem addressed or is this merely a distraction so you can hide from criticism from a public you already hate to even have to listen to? Because we know you. With the strong mayor initiative, you showed your whole ass by lowering the number of days that you would have to engage with the public to do, I think it was, in a year? Two days. Lie to me again about how you were a responsive mayor who cares about his constituents. Lie to me, but make it sweet, make it soothing, and make it undeniably false like every other one of your words. The First Amendment may not matter to you, but it matters to me. Making my disenfranchisement a part of the bureaucracy is bullshit. Fuck your decorum and fuck you, Daryl. What Steinberg and the council had proposed was the institution of a decorum officer so that debate or discussion could proceed without chaos. There were numerous objectors, several of whom would later come to protest the far-right Masano, or not even come to protest him. They were there already. These issues all conflate. How much to allow dissent? Who defines dissent? What's the line between energetic dissent and the inability of a public meeting to proceed? After the March 23rd disruption, several members of the council joined in saying the presence of the far-right and anti-Semitic messaging bothered them. Lisa Kaplan, a council member, said, As a council member, I don't feel safe in our meeting. It is appropriate to recess. I am Jewish and have been offended and disturbed each time the anti-Semitic has spoken publicly, specifically turning my back when he speaks. Tonight he brought more Proud Boys. I did not feel safe with them in the audience, period. Fellow council member Karina Talamantis said, The council gets disrupted sometimes. Usually it's for no more than a few minutes. Tonight our council meeting came to a halt due to the hatred of a few anti-Semitic and racist individuals. Our city and our council is no place for that kind of hate. Well, technically it was disrupted by the protesters screaming at the anti-Semitic and racist staters, if not statements. I can't tell anyone to feel safe, to not feel safe, but there are metal detectors outside the chamber, 
There were lots and lots of police. And the only violent acts, as far as I could see, came from protesters who began to push the Proud Boys and their friends. Now, the Proud Boys and Masano know what they're doing. You say an outrageous thing, you get a reaction, and you pretend, oh, I'm just here for civil discussion. The very statements themselves are uncivil, as in they are the opposite of a functioning civilization to blame Jewish bankers. But since the advent of the town hall, all sorts of meetings of this type have had kooks. Since the First Amendment really began to be defended, you know, after the ACLU got involved in the 70s, all public meetings risk weirdos, gadflies, wackadoodles. The anti-Semitic version of them are truly pernicious, but for most of my life, when someone raised their hand and proclaimed their anti-Semitic creed, it just brought embarrassment to the speaker. Now I know there is a move towards deplatforming, that if statements are ignored and moved on from, well, then they could take hold in an impressionable brain and be allowed to fester. Yeah, that's probably true online, where the statements remain out of touch, but in a public forum, I do think the motivations of the screamer are not to protect the next mind down the line who could be infected. They're to express the outrage contained within their own minds. Think about the amount of attention given to otherwise insipid and irrelevant comments. Today's Sacramento Bee featured a front page spread. Jewish leaders denounce anti-Semitic comments at council meetings. It chronicled with quotes from the Jewish Federation of Sacramento who appeared alongside the Jewish Community Relations Council, the Sacramento Board of Rabbis, the Sacramento LGBT Community Center, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Sacramento, Sacramento Area Congregations Together, the Sacramento Central Labor Council, and NAACP Sacramento, all at this press conference because one guy said some stupid things for two minutes. Barry Broad, president of the Jewish Federation of Sacramento, said they oppose such rhetoric, quote, not anywhere, ever again. And we need to keep saying it until the evil is drowned out by the good. Figuratively, yeah. But a heckler's veto? I don't think so. That is the rule of the council that people get to speak. Can't do what you heard there, which is to curse at a member of the council. But that wasn't censured when it happened. You can't threaten anybody. People have been arrested because of threats. But you do get to speak. That's the rule, and it needs to be the rule. Politically, the presence of an agreed-upon enemy like a Proud Boy or Masano gives embattled members of the council a common cause. Who isn't against Sacramento Nazis? We can all agree that Sacramento Nazis are a bad development. But the point of local governance is to discuss things that we all can't agree on. All threats must be investigated and prosecuted. All potential threats especially when they come from a self-declared Nazi, need to be closely monitored. All acts jeopardizing safety demand intervention. But I don't know if the opinion of the least credible member of the community should be allowed such sway. It seems not an overreaction emotionally. I understand and don't begrudge anyone their deep distress at hearing that. But strategically, I do think it was an overreaction. Who doesn't hate a Sacramento Nazi? I know I do. But I wonder whether the best manifestation of my revulsion is to just let him say his piece, allow him his constitutional right, and then to quickly move on. (music) 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>